0: Last week we, you may have not realized it hardly as we were going through it, but that was my first Christmas message of this season. And we shared a little bit how it really initiated out of God's grief over the sinful world and the condition of the world, the darkness of the world. And today we're going to get back to maybe a little bit more familiar when we think of the Christmas and the Christmas story. We'll be spending our time primarily in Luke chapter 2, looking at some different things about who the baby in a manger was and is and, and what he came to accomplish, what he accomplished. The title of my message this morning is simply Peace. Peace on Earth. Peace on Earth. And I do believe that there's probably not a greater need other than salvation, but I don't believe there's a greater need in our world today, our fallen world today, than peace. Sin leads us away from peace. Jesus came to offer peace. The world is so filled with anxiety and worry and fear There's very little peace. The world's eyes are almost always on circumstances and events. I mean, if we listen to the news, which we should as Christians be aware of what's going on around us, but it gets difficult because it's so negative. There's so much fear and anxiety in the world. There's so many things going on in our world that can easily bring fear and anxiety. But as Christians, we have the living God Dwelling in us, the Holy Spirit living in us, the fruit of the Spirit and of in us, and He is called the Prince of Peace. There is a peace that comes in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. Isaiah was a prophet, and we'll be looking at him a little bit more. But in, he was a prophet of God somewhere around 700 BC. So this was hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And the Jewish people had been living without a lot of peace for a long time already. And he wrote in Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Bringing an offering and being what the world needs in the sense of peace. I want to read Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and then give a little bit of context, historical context. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. For many years before this actual time, before Caesar Augustus was even the emperor of Rome, there had been much warfare, much brutality, much immorality in what we could call the whole Mediterranean basin, if you would. All of the nations around the Mediterranean Sea from Rome all the way around to Israel, down towards Egypt. And Rome had, had been pretty much being governed by a group of generals. But the generals were not working together in corporately. They were fighting against one another for more power, more authority, more wealth. And it was a time of brutality and warfare almost continuously amongst all these different generals. And finally, three people came to the forefront, the triumvirate of men, three men, And if you, actually, if you've watched a couple movies, or if you're actually a history buff of Rome and the Roman Empire, these names might be familiar to you. One of the three men was Marcus Aemilius. Another one was Marcus Antonius, or Mark Antony. And the third one was a man by the name of Octavian. And Octavian was, his grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar had many... Many, many problems and loss of family members, deaths, etc., for many different reasons. But he took a, a liking to Octavian to the point that he eventually adopted him as his son. And this man named Octavian is the man who became Caesar Augustus. For a number of years, these three men also fought against one another. So the area of this whole Mediterranean basin was used to warfare, brutality, immorality. It was a mess and it was a disaster. Even the world, the secular world, was hoping for peace. And they were looking for a savior, but in this sense, a political savior. Someone who could bring, pre, pre, bring peace Excuse me, to the area, to their lives. Some sense of stability. So the world was looking for peace. And finally, the one we call Caesar Augustus, Octavian, came to power over the other two. And the reality was he came and he did bring a sense of peace. There was military peace, there was political peace. He was very, very, very gifted as an administrator and arranged and organized the government. He became the first emperor of the Roman Empire. One of the problems after so much war and all of that had taken place was poverty. Poverty. Even Rome didn't hardly have any money. He took care of that by taking a huge amount, a great infusion of money out of Egypt. So in a sense, the people had a glimmer of hope that there finally was going to be peace in their lives and peace where they lived. And he became the supreme power. Augustus actually made reference to being like a god. Caesar Augustus a supreme being in the eyes of the Roman people. Reality was he was probably the most powerful man on the planet when he was in charge as the emperor of Rome. But even then, even the pagan world realized that this kind of peace wasn't good enough. There's a pagan writer. He was actually a philosopher, a stoic, and he wrote a few things, and I want to read a couple of his quotes realizing this is from an ungodly pagan person. His name was Epictetus, and he wrote these words. While the emperor may be giving us peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, from grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which, many yearn, for which man yearn for more than even outward peace. And another quote of his was, he who is free in the body but bound in the soul is a slave. But on the contrary, he who is bound in the body has, and is free in the soul is truly free. Even the pagan people of the day realized that having this political savior, Caesar Augustus, wasn't good enough. And the reality is, even as the most powerful man on the planet He was really nothing more than a pawn in the hand of God. To be used by God to accomplish His purpose and His plan. And we're going to look at that in just a few minutes. And God's plan that He had had been being revealed for many hundreds of years through prophets like Isaiah, and also in the New Testament we see by angels, Gabriel in particular. I want to read a few scriptures to you. The one in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The prophet Isaiah speaking. And even though they spoke for God, it wasn't always easy. But mostly I wanted to show us that God had a plan from way back, hundreds of years before Jesus, the light of the world, came into this dark world, the darkness of sin that encompassed mankind, kept us prisoners, looking for hope, looking for light, and looking for peace. As I said in Isaiah 7:14, the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Almighty Lord will accomplish this. And in Micah, another prophet, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, and then verse 5, he said, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times, and he will be their peace. The prophets spoke of this and were giving the people warning and encouragement that there was a Messiah coming. It wasn't what they were expecting. They were even being warned and cautioned about that, even as Isaiah chapter 53 talks about the suffering servant Jesus that prophet Isaiah referred to in the video clip. He gave them a picture. And then we get to the New Testament. We see in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew, God started speaking to them prophetically through angels. Angels who are messengers. In particular, we see he used Gabriel quite a bit right here. Gabriel came and he spoke spoke to Zacharias when he was the priest, the high priest. You maybe know the story where he God didn't let him speak because he didn't believe Gabriel when he gave him the message. But he was prophesying about his son, that he was going to have a son, a son we would know as John the Baptist, who was going to prepare the way for the Messiah, the Lord, to come. Gabriel went to Mary. And most all of us know in the Christmas story, he went to Mary, a young girl, speculation, ages anywhere from 13 to 17, young girl, and spoke to her prophetically that you are going to be with Child. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the child that you're going to conceive is going to be the Son of God. And He's going to be the Savior of the world. I I try to picture that if you're Mary. She's in love with Joseph, going to be married with him. And now she's pregnant. And she responds in faith. The angel then, of course, had to go make some things clear to Joseph while he was even planning how to, how to get rid of her, put her away kind of quietly because he was such a good man. He didn't want to bring shame or embarrassment upon her. And the angel of the Lord spoke to him and told him who this baby was that Mary was carrying, that he was going to be the Savior of the world. He was going to be the one who was going to bring the light into the world, the one who was going to bring hope and who was going to bring peace Spoken by the angels. And as we're going to read shortly in chapter 2, the angel showed up. It says, the angel of the Lord, I kind of personally wonder if it might not have been Gabriel one more time, who came as the shepherds were watching their flock, and it says they were living in the pastures with the animals. And the angel shows up and shares the message with them that we we're going to be looking at in just a moment. So we see that God's plan, even though there was this supreme being in political office, there was one who could bring peace and it wasn't Caesar Augustus. It was going to be a baby, a child. God with us, Emmanuel. We see that He's going to be born of a virgin. That He is going to be the wonderful counselor, a mighty God the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, that He was going to be born in this little tiny place called Bethlehem. That He was going to be born in a manger and that He was going to be the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. His plan was being revealed prophetically, preparing those involved and the people. But even as He's speaking by the angels to Joseph and Mary, there's a problem here when we look at the rest of the prophecies. Mary and Joseph, he's a carpenter. We get the impression a little later on because of the sacrifices that they offered that they didn't have a lot of money, they weren't very wealthy, they were poor. And they're living in a city called Nazareth. They aren't living in Bethlehem. I want to put up a map. This is just for some of us to get a little bit more of a grasp on this. The first map will show us a big, bigger picture. You see where Nazareth is up towards the top by the Sea of Galilee. And Israel's not a very big country, but they didn't have cars to jump in like we do. You see where Bethlehem is. Go ahead and put the second slide up, a closer up of Bethlehem and Bethany and Jerusalem. It was about a 75-mile trip, roughly, through rough terrain, no superhighways, and you got a pregnant wife who was very pregnant. Or she's actually your so they're not married yet. What in the world could cause a young couple, a young man with his young bride, future bride, who's very pregnant, to say, you know what, we've got to get to Nazareth here to fulfill some prophecy. Well, it isn't going to happen, is it? Nobody in their right mind would say, yeah, let's go for a walk, honey. It's going to take us a little while. It's about 75 miles. Maybe we can get a little animal for you to ride on if you can stand that. But God had a plan, and he used the most powerful human being on the planet to accomplish his plan. He used Caesar Augustus to proclaim that we need to have a census. Caesar Augustus caused Joseph and Mary to make that trip. God will use anybody and can use anybody, and this is who he used. I want to read again, starting in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, and they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. One thing we need to know a little bit about Bethlehem, when we think of a name of a town like Balaton, we think of the city limits. Bethlehem, we might think of the city limits. But the area around Ballaton is Lyon County, and we live in Minnesota. And the same thing was true about Bethlehem they referred to an area around Bethlehem as Bethlehem. Bethlehem itself, if you remember in looking at the map, was about five miles from Jerusalem. And that's kind of the geography of the the area that we're looking at and where they're living. And we, we get from historical writings, none of these are inspired by God necessarily, but Jewish writings, Jewish traditions, the oral law being written down, the, the, the rabbis and the writing down of these things, we, we understand from history that there were flocks, and if you think about it, it had to be flocks, near Jerusalem because with religious holidays and every day they were sacrificing lambs at the temple. And at holidays like Passover, they would slaughter hundreds or thousands of lambs. Where did they come from? Well, history tells us and tradition tells us there were flocks, the temple flocks, surrounding Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And the shepherds out there were supposedly specifically trained to take care of these temple flocks. And it appears like this very well could be who the shepherds are in this story. And it says an angel of the Lord, and again, I'd I like us to maybe use our imaginations a little bit in the dark of night probably sitting around a fire visiting about whatever shepherds visited about and all of a sudden the angel of the Lord is before him all of a sudden he's right there and it doesn't tell us what he looked like necessarily but I discover something as you go through when the angel of the Lord showed up usually there was something that came out of the angel's mouth very quickly Do not be afraid. So I have a sneaking suspicion they were a little bit intimidating. Especially when they showed up suddenly out of apparently nowhere. And the angel of the Lord shows up and the angel of the Lord comes and and has a message for them. And it says not only did the angel of the Lord show up, but the glory of the Lord shined around about him. The glory of the Lord that really mankind can hardly look upon. The brightness of the glory of God around this angel who has a message for these shepherds. And the first part of his message is do not fear. Do not fear. I, I, in my mind's eye, I try to picture what would, that, what would it have looked like. I mean, if you were one of those shepherds, and if there was something to hide behind you, it would have probably already dove into your foxhole. And the, and the angel speaks. And he says, I bring you good news. Good news. And if you look at that phrase in the original language, basically what we're seeing here is the good news of the gospel. the First evangelistic message, if you would, coming from an angel. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now, I don't get really hung up on this a lot, but there there is something about that little word, the. I don't understand Greek. I don't understand, shoot, I don't understand English half the time. But I know it is something that's called a definitive article. What that simply means is that word is speaking specifically about something a definitive group of people. Some of the Bible translations just say all people. But when we see that word with a definitive article, I believe there it's speaking to all people, meaning the Jewish people. And we all know, however, as the Jews rejected the Messiah, that all became all people in the Gentile world and all of the world. And I point that out because there's going to be another place where this word is used, and I think it's a significant place. And it brings a significant meaning to what I want to share a little bit about. So he said, I'm going to bring good news. And then verses 11 and 12, he says, and here's what the good news is. Today. 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 And and we don't understand necessarily the Jewish mindset, but they've been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the shepherds, this group of shepherds out in a pasture, with a bunch of sheep, are the first ones it's declared to. Today is the day. And not only today is, it's going to happen, it's today it already happened. Today. A Savior. Christ. The Lord. All three of those words. The Savior. The Messiah. The Christ. And the Lord. And the word Lord there in the Old Testament is the same word that they would have used to refer to Yahweh. Here it's being used to describe who this child is, Savior Christ and Lord. That's who's going to be found in this manger. And he's going to be found in the city of David, Bethlehem, just as it was prophesied, where Mary and Joseph had to go out of obedience to a political ruler according to God's plan. And it says, a baby, there will be a sign for you. There's going to be a sign. You're going to find a baby. He's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in, many of your translations say, a manger. But once again, it's the exact same Greek word that is a definitive article, and I believe the proper translation should be the manger. You will find a baby wrapped In swaddling clothes and lying in the manger, doesn't seem like a big deal. And I, I, what I'm going to share with you is speculative in a a great degree, but it's based on a lot of historical writings, because the Bible doesn't really tell us. And if you remember, if you've been here more than a couple years, two years ago, I, I shared a message completely on just this topic: where might Jesus have really been born? We all have that beautiful picture of the manger scene in our minds with all the animals and the straw and all that stuff. Um, you know, I'm not convinced. It's cute. It's pretty. But it's no more biblical than what I'm going to share with you. As a matter of fact, I believe it's way less biblical. The manger. Verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, here we go again. An angel had showed up, and all of a sudden he gives the message, and then suddenly the host of heaven, an army of angels, if you would, shows up as this angelic choir and has this proclamation. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appears with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests." This army of angels proclaiming. You know, there's something about the birth of this child. There's something about God's plan being unveiled, the plan that He says He he had before the foundations of the world. There's something here that seems to indicate very strongly that heaven was excited. Probably way more excited than earth at that moment. This army of angels come and they're singing glory to God in the highest. And then peace to all men whom God's favor rests. One thing we need to make sure we understand is when it says God's favor rests has nothing to do with this special elite group. Like, well, there's that one group somewhere and God's favor is on them. No. What it simply means is God's favor is going to be upon a particular group of people who respond to the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, His Son. That is who God's favor rests. He came to save all of mankind, but mankind must respond to the gift of salvation. And peace, peace will come upon those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because the Holy Spirit will live and dwell in us. And the fruit of the Spirit, the peace of God, will be all about us. Peace, most of us have heard the word shalom. And shalom has a meaning beyond peace. It's a a meaning of peace, a wholeness. It's like shalom, may the peace of God and peace with others and peace with yourself be upon you. Peace with God. Until there's a peace with God, there is no other peace. Peace with others would follow. And then peace with yourself. What does that mean? We sang about it today. Knowing who we are in Jesus Christ gives us a peace with ourselves. Knowing that we are children of God, that we've been purchased by the blood of Christ, that our sins have been forgiven. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no more condemnation. We have been set free of all of that because of Christ. And all of a sudden, there's peace. Brian said, made a comment in our congregational meeting. He shared it a little bit. No, let's see. This was at our, our Wednesday night class, sharing his testimony. He says, I'm finally comfortable in my own skin. That's peace with ourself, knowing who we are in Christ, available to all men. And notice the response in the next few verses, starting in verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, "Uh, Let's go to Bethlehem. (laughs) What a good idea. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen were just, that were just as they had been told. The shepherds immediately, again, in my mind's eye, my imagination, all of a sudden the angel had showed up, gave this message. There's this angelic choir, the host of heaven, that I probably couldn't even count. And they're praising God and singing with one voice, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to man whom God favors, and then they're gone. What would you and I have done? Did you throw something in the fire that we're inhaling? Did you? Did that really happen? Did you all? I mean, no. What did they do? Let's go. Let's go and see. Then I have this question, and from two years ago, if you were here, you know. Where did they go? How did they know where to go? They just said, let's go. And I would offer again, like I did a couple years ago, and I did a number of years previous, that they may have went to a specific manger that they knew exactly where to go. A place called Migdal Edar. Translated means the watchtower of the flock. And when I say there's some biblical support, we hear the first about Migdal Adar way back in Genesis. Rebecca gives birth and dies there, and she's ba- buried by Migdal Adar. It identifies it as Magdal Adar being near Bethlehem, in the area of Bethlehem. It was a place, and it existed. In historical times, they would build towers, and they would watch so they could see down the valleys. The shepherds could see down the valleys and see if there's something coming that might harm the sheep. And it was not uncommon for there to be like a lower level that was actually a cave. And on top of that cave, they would build this tower. Kind of have a picture. I don't know. I remember which slide. I showed that a couple years ago. It would look something like that. Historically and biblically, we know that it existed in the area of Bethlehem. And we know in that very area there were many, many, many flocks of sheep, the temple sheep. Tradition also says, and again, for those of you who want to check some of this out, what I'm getting a lot of this information from is from the Mishnah, the Targums, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Midrash, the Talmud. Now you understand, right? These are Jewish writings, Jewish commentaries, some of them attached to the Torah uh, they, are, they are writings, hi- there's historical writings. Edersheim writes a book, The Life and Times of Jesus Christ, historical, and it talks about this. This place called Migdal-Edar. This place where history and their books say the shepherds would often bring the ewes to the lower level, the cave of The manger. And that manger word can have a couple meanings. One, it can simply mean a stall, or it can mean like a feed trough. Doesn't matter. But in this place, when a ewe was going to lamb from the temple flock, they would often take them there to there, and then they would give birth. And the historical records add these things, and again, that's all. It, these aren't the inspired words of God. But historical say that these, these specifically or specially trained shepherds were a form of priest, a type of priest. And they knew that these lambs were going to be used, temple sacrifices, and they needed to be spotless. They couldn't have any damage to their physical bodies. So tradition says they would be born there, and then they would be cleaned, they would be looked over, inspected, and then they would often wrap them in swaddling cloths to keep them from thrashing around and hurting themselves as tiny lambs. One tradition even says that the swaddling cloths in that particular place were the old garments of the priests that were not just burnt or destroyed, they were used there to as swaddling cloths to wrap the sacrificial lambs in. And tradition states that they would often be wrapped up or tied in that when they would actually take the lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. I tell you all that just as a point of interest, something that really intrigues me. But at the very least, I think there's an amazing typology here. It's a historical pace. It's in the Bible. It's in the area of Bethlehem. We know there were temple flocks and we know there were temple shepherds. And we know what those sheep had, how they had to be taken care of. We know all these things as historical. And what a picture it paints for us, if it's true, as a type of Christ. Jesus being born where the sacrificial lambs for the temple was born. Jesus being wrapped in swaddling clothes, put in that manger. If this were true, when the angels told them to go, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in the manger. They would have known instantly where to go. They would have went to Magdalena and found this baby. Now back to what I know to be true. Look at the reaction that we see in those last few verses that I read starting in verse 17. and It might be 18 up there, but it said, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And it says this, and all who heard it were amazed. Some translations say, and wondered. And they were in wonderment and amazement at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. I just want to make a quick reference to three, t- three responses that we see there. And I think their typical responses could very easily be typical responses even today for people who hear the good news of the Christmas story, the gospel message. The wonder and amazement of all the people that the shepherds ran into or went and talked to. He said they shared the story of what had happened. And the people were like, wow, and wonder and amazement. But do you know that wonder and amazement does not necessarily mean faith? It doesn't necessarily mean they believed a thing. Wonder and amazement, and then they might have followed up with, you guys are nuts. We don't know, but wonder and amazement... People can be amazed at the good news of the Gospel. They can be amazed at the Christmas story. They can wonder at its beauty and and all of that, but that doesn't mean they believe it. There's that group of people. We need to make sure that people get beyond wonder and amazement to faith and believing. The second thing we see that I see here is Mary. Uh, I don't think there's anybody in here that doubts Mary was a believer. Mary had faith. She followed in obedience to the Lord, the prophetic word from the angels. There's no doubt, but yet notice, and we see this once again when Mary goes into the temple a little later in the story of Jesus' life, and she meets Simon and Anna, and it says she took these things, and she pondered them, she treasured them, she valued them greatly, but she pondered them in her heart. I think that's I think I think Luke admires that about Mary. And I think it's something that should be admired in us as Christians. There are many times as Christians we can be amazed. We can wonder at it. But I think it's a good thing to take these things, treasure them in our heart, and I think it's an okay thing to ponder them, to try to understand them better, to try to have greater and greater revelation. What does all this mean? Sometimes we guilt people into thinking, you don't have any questions about this Jesus thing. You've got to believe the Bible's true. Well, that's all nice, but none of us have full revelation. And I think Mary was pondering these things, trying to put it all together, trying to figure it all out and seeing how it was going to play out. And then we see a third group, those good old shepherds the response of the shepherds glorifying and praising God, they had experienced divine revelation and they had seen with their own eyes experientially this divine revelation was true. And I would pray and I trust and hope that this Christmas season and really every day of our lives, we respond in all three of those ways. The wonder and amazement of God's perfect plan of salvation should never get old and never be dull. It's the most amazing event. It's the most amazing true story that you could ever imagine. The demonstration of His love, the demonstration of His plan that brings hope and peace and salvation. We should also treasure the truths of God's Word we as Americans, there's not enough pressure. Maybe we need some politician to say we're going to confiscate all your Bibles. Maybe then we would treasure God's Word and we would want to know it better. We would want to understand it better. We would want to get it more deeply rooted in our hearts. That should be our response, just like Mary's response, to ponder these things, to treasure these things in her heart. And thirdly, Like the shepherds, glorifying and praising God. It should be our heart's desire to live a life that brings glory and honor to God. Not a life of compromise. Not a life trying to live in two different worlds. But a life that brings glory and honor to God. And continually in our hearts and on our lips, praise. Praising God for who He is. Praising God for what He's done. Praising God for who we are in Him. All three. These reactions should be ours. And Christmas is a great time to remember. Let's close in prayer. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Wonderful God, wonderful counselor. Your mighty God the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Father, I pray that these truths of who you are get deeply rooted in our souls, in our hearts. God, I pray that even as we get involved in the busyness of Christmas season, we don't ever forget the truth behind the story of Christmas. Of your perfect plan being played out on this earth. And this tiny child like a tiny light in a dark room that can bring light into the whole world that's been darkened by sin. Lord, I pray that it's in our hearts and there's a desire and a burden in our hearts to share that good news with others. Father, I thank you that the world is looking for peace. And I thank you that we have the answer to them finding peace. And I pray, God, that by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we are demonstrating that peace to the world around us. That no matter what's going on, no matter what's taking place in our nation, in our locality, in our lives, Father, that the peace of God fills our heart. That we would truly be living, walking testimonies of Jesus. Lord, I pray now that you would watch over us as we go our separate ways. Keep us safe. God, give us those divine appointments and the grace to respond in obedience to whatever you call us to do. Father, I pray all these things that Jesus would be glorified and it's in his name we say, amen.